I'm going to start this morning out with a word, and it's a word that's going to translate through the whole teaching this morning. The word is transformation, 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 a huge part of the Christian faith and what it means to each one of us, transformation. We are obsessed with transformation as a culture. We love it. Just think about the number of TV shows that are on right now that have to do with transforming something. It's been a decade or more since the Extreme Home Makeover was so popular, but that just led to so many different HDTV makeover shows where you take an old house and you fix it up and you, you do all these things to these homes. Uh, there's these car shows and people are taking old cars and they're fixing up. They just love to see the transformation. Transformation, you know this word, you use this word. It's taking one thing and allowing it or helping it to become another thing. Uh, one thing that I love to see transform is a city uh, we, in my hometown, I'm from Wilson, North Carolina, kind of a small town, and in the last several years, man, they have done this huge renovation of their downtown area. Have you uh, been part of a small town that they like really put a lot of energy into building up the downtown? It's really cool because there was a time where downtown was like it. That's where you went for everything, and then like the malls came, and a lot of the businesses downtown suffered, so they put all this energy, and it's cool now to go back to some of these historic buildings, but see them revitalized with new businesses, and they put in new parks, and new streets, and all this stuff. Uh, I got sucked into a rabbit hole this week online. I I want to introduce you to a website. It's called uh, lewistmore.com, or it might be Louis T. Moore, L-O-U-I-S-T Moore. Uh, Louis or Lewis, it was a historian in Wilmington in like the 20s, 30s, and 40s. And I think he lived into the 1980s, but he made it his personal goal to just collect a history of Wilmington. I didn't know about this till this week. And he took these amazing photographs uh, in the 1930s and 40s and even found some from earlier that he kind of archived. And he put them on this, uh, they, they published a book and now someone's turned it into a website. So I got a few pictures I want to share with you this morning. And if you've been in Wilmington longer, you know Wilmington, you'll recognize some of these. This first one, this is an aerial shot of Wilmington from I think around 1930. Now you recognize it, don't you? You're like, that's Wilmington. I totally recognize that. But if you looked all the way, I think it's to the left, you see the big dark building there. That's actually the Atlantic Coast Rail uh, Line. Imagine a world where railroad was so important, but you know that's what it was like in the 30s. I mean, it was a big deal, and Wilmington has transformed so much since then. Here's another picture. Uh, This one is of, I think we're standing on Front Street looking east, if that makes sense to you, and if you're directionally challenged, just it's where the post office is. Um, this is not the current post office. This post office, I believe, was built in 1889. And then it actually was torn down by the mid-30s. And there's a new one there now. That's, that's the one they, they built in the place of it. But just take a look at that picture. Look, I think it's like a parade going on. And there's people. All of those people are well into their years, if not passed on by now. And it's a different world. Think about the transformation that's happened in our city since, since those times, uh, the early 1930s. This last one, uh, this is another one from Front Street looking uh, south, I think. And it, there's a lot of things I could point out about this picture. I want to point out the rail lines down the middle of the street. You see that? That was for streetcars. And there were streetcars before there was the public bus system going in and out of places in Wilmington. And what was neat to learn was that they actually had cars that would go from the urban core to the suburbs. And there was even one that went all the way to Riceville Beach. And in the summer, they would run it extra often so that beachgoers could go to the beach. Isn't that cool? I mean, so, so I show you these pictures because it's, like it's like a time machine, and we can see like how much things have changed. If you drive in downtown Wilmington right now, you'll recognize a lot of these same buildings. They're still there. Some of them are from as early as the late 1800s or mid-1800s, but just, wow, the transformation. I bring all this up just to say transformation is a huge part of our life. It impacts every part of our being, our personalities, our bodies, our relationships, 
all the things we go through go through this transformation, and it's hugely important in our spiritual life. Because there's a place where we need to be transformed to be more like what God wants us to be like. And it's from that place I want to launch into our teaching in the book of Romans this morning. We are in the sixth week of our teaching series through the book of Romans. It's been quite a journey. And the whole idea of this series is to call the book of Romans the gears of the gospel because it reads a little bit like an instruction manual for the, uh, how Christianity works. And so we've talked about a lot of things. And one major part of Christianity is transformation. That's what happens. Uh, I, I want to do a little bit of a recap. It's been a few weeks since we've done a recap through the book. So if you got your Bible, um, you can go ahead and grab it today. Uh, we've got some free ones to give away right there on that gray shelf by the door, or feel free to look up on your phone app. But I want you to actually have your hands on a Bible, whether it's digital or, uh, or physical, and flip through the pages of this book. We're going to end up in chapter 12 today, if you want to go ahead and grab it. But in week one, we looked at chapters one and two. And what we found in chapters one and two, a couple things. First, we found that the book of Romans was written by, uh, tell me, who, who wrote the book of Romans? Paul, the Apostle Paul. Yeah, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans, and he writes it to where? Rome. Yeah, it's the book of Romans. He writes it. This was not a trick question. This is, this is easy stuff. He writes it to Rome, and there's a group of Christians there who are going through uh, some division, um, they are divided because there's a group of Roman Christians who had Jewish heritage background, that was their faith, and then there was another group that were Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and they had a lot of friction there. But we learned a lot uh, in that book, in that week, specifically in chapters one and two, that this thing, when there's evil and wickedness in the world, it brings God's wrath. We talked about God's wrath. But we also learned that when we are able to seek righteousness, it brings God joy. And the things that divide us can be many, but the thing that brings us together is our shared need for a Savior. So that was week one. That was week one. You can go back and listen to that on our podcast if you want to. We went week two, looked at chapters three, four, and five. Uh, we introduced the role of faith as a doorway to righteousness. We can't actually fix all the sin in our life, but because of Jesus, we have a path to forgiveness. And our faith in Jesus is actually credited to us as righteousness. Wickedness brings God wrath, but righteousness brings God what? Joy, and so he gives us a path to, to serving him and, and worshiping him, helping him find joy. Uh, in week three, we moved through chapters six and seven, and so in chapters six and seven, actually Patrick Harrison taught that week, and we looked at what it looks like to move from our place of sin and death to a place of life in God, so from death to life, and there's this, this huge teaching there going on about what happens to our soul when we accept God's grace? It's a beautiful thing. Uh, week four, we looked at just chapter eight, and we met the most powerful figure that we could ever know, God's Holy Spirit in our life. And remember we asked the question, who's in charge here? Because in chapter eight, it talks about a life that's governed by the Spirit versus a life that's governed by our flesh, and who's in charge here? It's a battle. And so we talked a lot about that battle, but the power that the Holy Spirit comes into the life of a Christian and helps them overcome the flesh and lean into the Spirit. It's a beautiful thing. Last week was week five, and we looked at chapters 9, 10, and 11. And this was an interesting week. If you recall, last week we talked a lot about the Jewish history that goes on with all of this. And we even said, like, does this even apply to us if we don't have Jewish heritage? Does it even apply? The answer was Yes, because over and over, Paul says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. We have a common need for a Savior. And so the big picture we pulled out of that was this image of running away from home. And we run away, we run away, we run away from God. 
Yet God stands by the road. We, we looked at the parable of the prodigal son, and he stands by the road waiting and hoping and asking that we do come home, and he embraces us, and he throws a party when we decide to return to him. And so it's a beautiful thing. So that's been the, that's been the book of Romans. Uh, when we get to chapter 12, there's a shift. Because up to this point, it's been very theological, very philosophical. Uh, if you read it on, on, on a really um, theological level, a lot of words like redemption, justification, sanctification, these are just concepts that kind of rise to the top. And they're good and they're interesting, but there's a noted shift at chapter 12. And, and I think for this reason, chapter 12 is one of people's favorite chapters of the Bible. People love Romans chapter 12. This is why. The shift is from the theological to the practical. Anybody fans of the practical? Like I am. Like don't, don't give me too many details. Like don't tell me a bunch of junk I don't need to know. Just tell me what you need to tell me. Show me where you need to show me. Like, and if I want to do it, I want to just do it, right? And so I love because in chapter 12, that's where he lands. So today, we're going to talk about transformation and what happens when the rubber meets the road. When we can finally get involved in what God is actually doing in our life and see what that does to us on a personal level. Um, Romans chapter 12. So that's where we pick up. Romans chapter 12, it starts with a really powerful word. Let's look at Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, okay, so pay attention. In the Bible, when you see the word therefore, it means I just said a whole lot of stuff. Therefore, this, okay? That's what the word therefore means. And so that's what this is. Therefore, this, and this, this that's coming up is powerful. This is the practical. All right, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed, that's our word, by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Therefore, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. What in the world does that mean? That sounds like, I don't know, gory or confusing or super metaphorical. Like, what does that mean? Um, I'm a big fan of the Broadway musical Hamilton. Anybody heard it or like it? Jeez, like, I'm in. I love, I'm not like a Broadway guy. Like, I'm not like, hey, let's listen. To, let's go watch Sound of Music. Like, I don't even, is that Broadway? I don't know. Like, I don't like musicals. They get on my nerves. But Hamilton is the beautiful mix of two of my favorite things, American history and hip-hop. It's like, it's amazing. The poetry in Hamilton is so spot on, I could, but this isn't a commercial for Hamilton. The reason I say this is because there's a scene in Hamilton that really helps us understand what does it mean to be a living sacrifice. And so there's this moment. It's, it's, it's American history, Revolutionary War. You've got George Washington. And George Washington is talking to Alexander Hamilton. And Alexander Hamilton is, trying, is being recruited by George, can we call him George? Mr. Washington, His Excellency, to be his right-hand man, to be his uh, kind of administrator of some of the uh, secretarial duties. The war was going poorly, and Alexander had some great administrative skills, and he said, listen, I want you to come on and be my, my, my personal secretary to help me organize the war. Alexander Hamilton was not down with that. Alexander Hamilton really wanted to be a soldier. Like, he wanted to be dodging bullets and shooting cannons. Like, he, he wanted to be leading the army. He felt like he had those skills. And so they were going back and forth, and George Washington's trying to help him see that it's not just about the fighting point. And, and this is what he says. This is the line from the song. I was just like you when I was younger, head full of fantasies of dying like a martyr. Dying is easy, young man. Living is harder. Dying is easy. Living is harder. Now, 
obviously, George Washington and all those guys, they knew the value of a life. I mean, that's one thing George Washington constantly talked about was just his awareness of the soldiers that were dying. It's not that dying for a cause isn't a big deal, but it's this concept of anybody can just flippantly throw out, like, I would die for that. It's like, oh, yeah, you would die for it, but can you live for it? I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your proper worship. Like in view of all the amazing things God has done for us, live for him. In the Old Testament system of sacrifices, the way that someone would find forgiveness for their sins was they would, they would get an animal, a, a, a bull or a goat or a dove, and they would take it to a priest and it would be slaughtered, it would be killed, and, and then they would burn it and it would be an offering to God. And God accepted this. He was pleased with this. It was his instruction to do this. But the thing about those animals is that they were dead. After they were dead, they really didn't do anybody any good. Is so that how much more useful to our God, can we be is it, if we're alive? If our every breath and our every step and our every use of our hands becomes a service to God, this is a living sacrifice. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. I love uh, uh, Ronald Knox as a theologian from like the early 1900s. He re- he translated this, and this is what he how he translated that verse. He said. This is the worship due from you as a rational creature. In view of God's great mercy for you, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. This is your act of, of this is this is your act of worship. It, this is the worship due from you as a rational creature. In other words, based on everything God has done, it only makes sense that we would live for Him. I told you this is practical, and the thing is. We get so heady with our faith, like we're up here, and we're trying to do all kinds of stuff, and God's like, whoa, 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 like, what do you, just like when you wake up in the morning, like, how are you giving me glory? When you go to work, how are you giving me glory? When you talk to people, how are you giving me glory? I'm so proud of you for having read so many books and know all these deep theological concepts, and it's great, the conversations and the arguments you can have, and you can win debates. Good for you. Are you living for me? The rubber's meeting the road. It's practical. I love what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, because this is all about transformation. Because when God comes into our life, he transforms us. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. When God comes into our life, he begins to change us. He begins to transform us. But the second part of that verse that we read earlier, we're going to get through all of chapter 12 today. You might have noticed we're still in verse 1. We're going to get there. But in verse 2, we are introduced to what I want to just call the enemy of transformation. I think the enemy of transformation, and there could be an argument made that the enemy of transformation is confirmation, to conform, conformity. Transforming is like uh, taking one thing and helping it to become something else. Conformity is saying, just become like everything else. And so there's a very different mindset there, and this is what it says in verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed By the renewing of your mind, throughout history, especially Christian history, it's been a struggle for us, and you probably relate to this. I certainly do. There's a struggle for us to find, what does it mean for me to not conform to the pattern of this world? What does that mean? Like, how far do I need to go? And you've got all kinds of different groups that have developed. There's, there's monastic groups, uh, like, like monks who go, and, and they live in a monastery, and they move away, and they take their whole culture 
away, and they focus solely on worship. And that's, that's a really honorable and beautiful thing. I mean, just think about that life. And the, and the stories out of those circles are, are really cool. And you could talk about different people groups that do it. But I like to focus specifically on a, a specific group of monks. There were this group of people, I love them, in the third century, there's a group called the Desert Fathers. And these were people who would uh, just move out to remote, remote areas and just kind of live an, uh, an ascetic life of nothingness. And they would just, their whole goal would be like, if I could just focus on being spiritual. And that's all they would do. But probably my favorite is this guy. His name is Simeon the Stylite. I got a picture of him. This is a painting. Uh, they didn't have cameras in the third century. So this is a painting. Simeon the Stylite. Let me explain this picture to you, okay? Because here, here's Simeon's story. Maybe you've heard this story. Maybe not. This is awesome. You should look him up, read about him. He's just, he's just, just a fascinating guy. Uh, when he was a teenager, uh, he, he became a Christian, and he decided to go into a monastery, so he became a monk. And he moves to this monastery, and he's so focused by his older teens, so focused on being removed from the world. The, the report from the monastery was that they asked him to leave because he was unfit for their community. Because I don't know, like, how, I don't know, I didn't know monks could, like, kick you out. I didn't know that was a thing you could do. But it happened to Simeon. So he gets kicked out, but he's like, it's fine. He developed a really good reputation as a wise and learned man. And so he moves out, and he, but he's like, I want to get away. So he goes out to this desert area, and he just kind of sets up camp. I think he lived in, like, a straw hut for, like, a couple years or something. Uh, but then his reputation stuck with him, so people found him out. And they can't, I mean, think about it. I'm guessing he's probably in his early 20s now. And people are just seeking him out for wisdom, for prayer. How many 20-year-olds are you like, listen, got to talk to that guy? Like, just, listen, I, could you explain my mortgage to me? Like, no, but the, Simeon, he must have had something serious going on. So people, but here's the thing, he didn't want the crowds. He wanted to get away. That was his whole idea. So this is the way the story goes. He finds this pillar with a platform on top. It's like nine feet off the ground, and he climbs on top of it. And he's like, ah, peace and quiet. And he just stays there. Some local village kids start bringing him some uh, water and food. It didn't keep the crowds away. Actually, him leaving on the pillar made things worse. They started, more and more people started coming like, dude, you got to see the dude on the pillar. Like, I don't even know if they're asking for advice anymore. It's like, dude, you got to see this. So he got on like higher pillars. And I don't know, like, I think a lot of it turns into like myth. And I don't know like how high the pillars got. Here's what you got to know. According to the history we have on him, he lived on top of these pillars for 37 years. I am 37 years old. For the entirety of my life, he would have been sitting on this platform on top of a pillar, just praying. And people would come and they said he worked through these stretches all day. He stretched and stretched and he prayed and he prayed. Is that what God wants from us? Like, is that what it means, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind? I don't think so. And I think that there's a really good reason for that. No, no shame on, on Simeon. I mean, Simeon did his thing, and he was just trying to be faithful. And so I'd, if we could all be a little bit more like Simeon, maybe we would be a lot better people. But Jesus had instructions for us to go into the world and make disciples, that we should do our good works so that people would see them and then give glory to God in heaven. I don't know if you can do that when you completely isolate yourself, but i got to be honest. There have been a lot of days where I would love to just pack up my family and move out to a cabin in the woods and never see another human being because the world we live in is full of evil. It's full of bad stuff. And I'm like, if I'm bringing my kids up in this world, I mean, I remember, I distinctly remember when my son was born and it was, we were still in the hospital and I was just like, just getting to know each other, you know? And I was like, bro, I'm sorry. It's hard out there. Like, I remember that conversation with my newborn son. Like, it's, it's gonna be hard. And like, I almost feel a little bit guilty 
for bringing you into this. <laughs> but that's not what God has for us. God doesn't have isolation and separation from us. What he has for us is the ability to come into our lives and transform us and allow us to go into the world and make a difference. That's why every single week when we close our church service, we say, let's go shine light in dark places because that's what truth does. Truth always exposes lies. Love always wins over hate. And it happens when God begins to transform us. So where does that leave us? Well, our verse says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. If you remember when we studied in chapter 8, we, we talked about the Holy Spirit, and we asked this question, who's in charge here, right? So it's this question of, is, is the, are you being led by the Spirit, or are you being led by the flesh? Who's in charge here? And the whole idea there was, was leaning in and allowing the Holy Spirit to govern your mind. That's exactly what it says in Romans chapter 8. A life governed by the Spirit, or mind governed by the Spirit is life. But a mind governed by the flesh is death. And so there's a lot to do here with our minds. What are we thinking about? And how are we deciding what we think about? And how are we deciding who makes decisions for us? And so I love that this verse here that we just read said, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. Renewing, it's, it's a washing process. When I teach this, I like to say it's rinse and repeat, you know, like the instructions on the back of the shampoo bottle. Like you're not just gonna get it all in one thing. Our righteousness comes because of our faith and, and because of Jesus' sacrifice. We go into the waters of baptism, we raise and walk in newness of life. That's Romans chapter six. But the, the transformation is a process. It's not just like a single washing where we, it's not baptism. First Peter says that baptism isn't just the washing of dirt from our bodies. It's a pledge of a clean conscience towards God. I think that's First Peter 3, 5. Something like this, 1 Peter. And so the, the idea is that there's a renewing that happens. But the renewing of my mind is a, is a rinse and repeat process. And I'm constantly getting in here. And if you've ever taken a dirty old rag or dirty sponge and you've wrung it out and you've got new water and you've wrung it out and you've got new water and you've wrung it, eventually that water becomes clean. It's the process of God coming in and transforming us. I said this was a practical sermon, and we've only been in the first two verses, and we are going to right now get to the whole rest of Romans, because here's what you got to do. Each one of us are responsible for getting in our own Bibles with our own pencils and our own highlighters and our own notebooks and breaking this thing down and spending time with God's Word. Uh, we, it's, 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 impo it's impossible to be spoon-fed God's Word. We have to embrace it. We have to put it in our mind. We're going to have a mind governed by the Spirit when you spend time with Him. So here's my challenge for all of us this week. Romans chapter 12, grab it and turn to it and open it and start reading it. And then throughout just this chapter or other places in the Bible, maybe we can find some super practical things that are gonna help us to really begin to rinse and repeat. And it starts here, verse three. For the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to you. So this first step, this first, this first rinse and repeat starts with, it's not about you. It's not about me. Begin to think of other people first. And this others first is such a primary trait of Jesus. Hebrews uh, tells us that for the glory set before him, 
For the joy set before him, rather, joy set before him, which was our salvation. For the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. Philippians chapter 2 says that he gave up. He didn't consider equality with God something he should hold on to. Rather, he released himself and he made himself nothing. And he took the very likeness of a man and became a human and was obedient even to death. Like this is, this is humility. This is others first mentality. And that's what Jesus did. So renewing our minds is about focusing on others to start with because that's what Jesus did and it, it helps because suddenly the sin that drags us down, the temptation, what are the, why is it tempting to you? Because I like it. It's me. It's good for me. So if I'm focused on what other people need, suddenly there's less and less things. It's not going to be instant. It's a rinse and repeat. We keep going. Verse four, after you've committed to putting others first, now you find your role in God's body. And so he uses this metaphor of a human body to talk about the church. Verse four. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. For example, my fingers do different things than my ears, and I'm happy for that, right? We have different parts that do different things. Verse 5, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. I mean, my finger and my ear are on the same body. That's their address. We are the same, but we are different. Uh, Verse 6, we have different gifts according to the grace of God given each of us. So if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So he's writing to Christians here. And if you're a Christian today, I want to ask you to look for the giftedness that God has given you and ask yourself, How am I intentionally using this for the glory of God? How am I being, and I think a lot of times preachers are a little bit guilty of saying that your role in the body has to do with what you do on a Sunday morning. Like, I'm, I'm, I got the spiritual gift of unfolding chairs, and so that's what I'm going to, and maybe you do, and that's great, but the body of Christ is about living in the world daily, and all, so, so what are the, even your job skill set, like, what are you doing at work? Is it giving glory to God? And as we begin to push those gifts towards the kingdom, towards others, our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also those who maybe don't know Jesus yet, maybe even, it's going to say here in a second, even those who persecute us, even those who are against us, if we begin putting those to use in the world for the kingdom of God, suddenly this is the rinse and repeat that starts happening. The rubber meets the road, and we can have our minds renewed, and we can see the transformation happen. Verse 9 says this, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. This is the transformation. Because, man, I am constantly in my own mind, going through this rinse and repeat process, literally trying to get rid of evil things in my life. So to be transparent, like right now, even as, as, as recently as last night, I was questioning myself, like certain things that I do, like Netflix series that I watch and social media that I engage in that just takes up to my time. And just like, what do I need to just peel out that's just in the way? I need to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, Understanding that it's about your relationship with Jesus, not about going, well, you know what, at least I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not doing what they're doing. It's not about, it's about serving them. It's about rinse and repeat your brain. And the transformation begins, and it continues, and it continues. Verse 10, keep reading. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor 
one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. That was a list right there. Like I could do probably like a 10-week sermon just on that verse. So circle it, highlight it, underline it, get your notebook out, spend some time with it this week. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. All of this is others-focused. All of this is saying it's not about me. It's about reflecting Jesus' character into the relationships I have in my life. And it's awesome. I, I highly recommend that you go back with this week, with this verse, and just unpack it and ask yourself, like, what are some things I could really gain from this? What, what does it mean? What does it mean for me to practice hospitality and find others in need and care for them? What does it mean for me to put others before myself? What does it mean to give generously? What does it mean for me to? Uh, it keeps going. Verse fourteen. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I mean, we're, we're a retribution culture. We, we are like, you know, it's not turn the other cheek. It's like throw a grenade. I mean, we don't even try to love those who come against us. I say we as a culture. I mean, maybe, maybe you do and maybe I do and maybe we try. But the, bless those who persecute you. That's hard. I've got good friends who live in India whose loved ones were murdered by Hindu extremists, dragged out of their house. How do you, what, how do I love that? But what's awesome is I see the stories that they tell of continuing to love those group of people and how many of them have continued to come to Jesus because they see the hope that these families, even though they destroyed a life, these people eventually, because of the love, the hospitality, the generosity, the grace, the peace, the love that was shown to these people, those people eventually gave their life to Jesus. It's not always gonna happen. But it's the transformation that happens in our heart. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. That's easy. Mourn with those who mourn. That's hard. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Hmm. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We're, we're a culture that's real quick to just write people off. Like, I don't have to live at peace with you. We got this wonderful phrase. Let's just agree to disagree. And that's a good phrase. It actually is a really good quality to learn how to do. But instead, we're just like, I'm just gonna hate you secretly. <laughs> um, but live at peace with everything. That's something. Wrestle with it. Wrestle with it. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Transformation. That is not the picture that we see in the world today. It's not. I don't even have to give illustrations or explain it because you're like, yeah, you're right. That's not the world we live in. But that's the transformation that Jesus brings to this world. The ability to put others first, to make love be our primary motive and just to get behind each other and say, listen, let's find God in this and let's seek him together. Instead of conforming to the world, confirmation is the enemy of transformation. Let's be agents of change in the world. We don't have to go live on top of pillars, 
but we can renew our minds daily, rinse and repeat. And then we can go into our workplace and make a difference. We can go into the lives of kids who have needs and we can make a difference. We can show a different attitude to our neighbor than they show to us and make a difference. And our good deeds will be seen before the world and people eventually will give glory to God in heaven. And what's beautiful, God says, it's mine to avenge. Like you just do what you're supposed to do. I'll take care of the rest. And I'll close out. We're gonna let Paul finish this out with our verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's pray.